I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's September, and as the days get shorter and temperatures cooler, it's time to go back to school. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at how lunchtime is changing from elementary schools through college, whether classes are remote or in person. While there was some information about where families could access food, it was spread out on many different websites. I'm seeing people, you know, advocate for, like, going back into school and... A main reason is, you know, food insecurity, like kids go to school and they get fed. And I'm just, that's a whole other thing of like fight for kids to be fed versus like going to school. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your lone co-host this week, Ethan Frisch. Valerie is uh, finishing her book manuscript, much more important than uh, hosting a podcast. Um, and I'm really excited to get to introduce you to uh, to two guests, uh, people I've known for, for a, a little while and got to observe uh, from a distance their process of starting their amazing new company. Uh, Vanessa Pham and Kim Pham are the co-founders of Omsom. Thanks for joining me this week. Pumped to be here. <laughs> so Kim and Vanessa, tell, tell us a little bit about Omsom. What is it and, and how did you come to start the company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Vanessa and I are both first-generation Vietnamese Americans and daughters of refugees. And I think... And sisters. And sisters. Oh, sorry. <laughs> big, big piece of that. Um, we grew up in Boston. Um, and, you know, I think for a lot of first and second generation Asian Americans like us, you know, walking into a grocery store, particularly down this kind of quote-unquote ethnic aisle in, in most mainstream um, stores is kind of like taking a step back in time, right? Like a lot of these products are, are, are super old school. They feel very diluted. And, and we just looked at that. And we also looked at kind of this like changing DNA of the country, you know, where a third of the U.S. population is now comprised of immigrants and their children. And, and in particular, Asian Americans um, are the fastest growing um, population with the largest growing buying power. And we just kind of saw this disconnect. Um, and, and also kind of on, on a larger level, right, there's a lot of national interest around both Asian flavors and Asian stories, you know, b- between David Chang and Anthony Bourdain and Ugly Delicious. We just saw that folks are getting really, really excited um, to kind of hear and, and taste uh, these stories. And so we're like, what if we kind of tried to reimagine this category a bit and, and kind of do it the right way by, by involving the right folks kind of every step um, of the process. And so, yeah, Amsam was really kind of born to, in many ways, like, reclaim um, Asian flavors and stories um, and, and pay homage um, to the communities from which they arise. And so, so how did you uh, decide to frame that? Because you're, you're launching a particular product in that context. So how did you decide on the product? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think stepping back, I, I realized we haven't actually said what we do and what we are. So um, 
as you may have gleaned from now, we are a new Asian food brand. Um, we make pantry shortcuts. Um, so these, what we call starters, um, and they're essentially these, these shortcuts that allow you to make Asian dishes, restaurant quality in under 30 minutes with just a handful of fresh ingredients. Um, our starters have all the aromatics, spices, oils, vinegars, and sauces that you need already packaged together, ready to go in one single pouch. You kind of rip it, uh, pour it, and you cook with your favorite protein. You have a meal on your table in, in 20, 30 minutes. And, and so that's our first product to market, the starter. Uh, and how did we kind of come up with that format? Well, we actually just kind of threw everything we knew out the window and we're like, let's just start fresh and start by really trying to understand what is a hard part of cooking Asian cuisine for folks? Like, what do people struggle with? Um, like, we know there's this whole world out there of condiments and spices and um, sauces, but like, what what possibly could we dream up that would actually kind of um, most directly meet the needs of consumers today when it comes to Asian cuisine? So we did a ton of research. Um, we surveyed 300 consumers. We actually interviewed 100 and watched 50 people cook in their kitchens, um, just Kim and myself for months, um, which was so much fun. And, and we learned a lot in that process. And I think what we what we kind of landed on was that when it comes to cooking Asian food, the hard part isn't really getting your chicken and stir frying it like people are doing some variation of that right now today. Um, and, and what people are struggling with is actually two things. It's getting those hard to find ingredients. So like the oils, um, the spices, the sauces, all the specialty things. Um, and then the second part is even if you have, you know, that pantry full of Vietnamese seasonings and spices, uh, you might not feel comfortable putting together the flavors. That's where people struggle the most and lack confidence, uh, whether you're Asian or you're not Asian, because a lot of Asian folks are like, oh, my mom doesn't use tablespoons <laughs> and teaspoons. So when I'm on the phone with her, I have no idea how to put this together. Um, and so we're like, huh, that's super interesting. What if we designed something that like allowed us to tackle just that hard part and then leave the rest up to the consumer to flex to their dietary preferences and restrictions? Um, and so that's kind of how we came up with this, this starter format. Um, and yeah, it's been really cool seeing people around the country making LARB and sisig and um, Vietnamese tit nung. Yeah, so let tell me a little more about how you picked the the individual uh, dishes and cuisines to start with, because you started with three three different dishes. What was the process like to decide on those three? Yeah, so uh, well, first and foremost, uh, Kim, like Kim mentioned, we're Vietnamese, and so doing launching with Southeast Asian products, I think, just felt much like felt close to home for us. Felt like an area where we um, were really excited to kind of bring. Um, products to market for, especially because Southeast Asian cuisine, um, particularly Filipino and Vietnamese food, is pretty underrepresented compared to East Asian cuisines like Chinese food or Japanese food. So we really wanted to start there because it's close to home for us and it's underrepresented. Um, as far as the dishes themselves, uh, something that Kim and I have done from day one is partner with these kick-ass tastemakers who are iconic chefs in each of their respective cuisines. These are people that kind of of these backgrounds of Southeast Asian backgrounds of the um, kind of either were born in the U or born in that country or um, were for our first gen in the U S um, with parents from that country 
to help us develop these products. And we actually collaborated with them really closely to even decide the dishes that we that we did um, for our kind of our first product line. So it was in partnership with these tastemakers that we landed on the three dishes that we did. Um, the the flavors that you're presenting are uh, often, you know, even for Americans who might be familiar with Filipino food or Vietnamese food, the dishes that you're presenting are are maybe not the most familiar. You know, sisig <laughs> in particular. Uh, yeah. Was that was that a statement that you were making? Were, were you was there a goal of introducing people to aspects of those cuisines that they might not have encountered before, or were those just your favorites? <laughs> Yeah, I I, can, I would kind of say it's like probably a, a combination of the two. I think our our first is like, you know, we, we love these dishes immensely as individuals. So probably arose from a bit of a selfish desire to have some of these tasty dishes more, more easily available for us. Um, but I guess like, you know, the second piece is that we kind of see our core kind of early adopter audience as Asian Americans. And, and I think for a lot of first and second gen Asian American folks, like these dishes um, was... Are, are kind of like our nod to them of like, hey, like kind of if you know, you know, type type thing where uh, these dishes are, are beloved um, in each of these cuisines and e- in each of these cultures. And so we kind of wanted to make sure that like we really kind of did right by those communities first by showcasing dishes that are not only loved, but also, you know, not as um, easily recreatable um, in your home kitchen away from your parents or away from your grandparents. So yeah, I think it, you know, it's, it's, it was a combination of like our desire to to um, like celebrate dishes that we love, but also kind of a nod to our our kind of core community of like, hey, like we know you, and we and we're like we understand the sort of dishes that you want to be able to cook at home. Yeah, I, I love that approach as <laughs> like this sort of coded message to your uh, to your audience, to your community. Uh, what's the response been like? What do people think so far? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a really crazy four months since we've launched um, and we've been so touched and honored um, by the excitement and the um, support that we've seen from our customers, both Asian and other backgrounds, pretty diverse set of, of, of folks, um, different different races, different ages. Um, that's just been so cool to see. But yeah, the response has been amazing. We sold out three times so far, the first time um, in the first 72 hours, which was um, partially because obviously we're first time founders and don't know <laughs> how to project um, demand, but also partially um, because of the excitement from folks. I think um, we're trying to do something really different here. And, you know, it could have gone one of two ways, really. We, we really try to come out with a a big statement and it ended up making a splash and, and I can't really take a ton of credit for that. That's really Kim's, Kim's <laughs> magic. She's the, the kind of creative brains behind the brand, but um, it's been a, an amazing thing to see um, on, on, as far as Asian consumers, having them tell us, you know, all these DMS and these emails saying that they feel seen, they feel heard. They've never seen, you know, a food brand that um, was kind of um, this committed and intentional to doing right by the Asian community. Um, and then we've also heard from non-Asian folks around the country being like, I've never even made anything like CSIG in my life, but oh my gosh, like now I'm making it, you know, once a week. And like, that's been crazy to see. So um, yeah, all around, just completely humbled. Uh, Kim, do you want to talk a little bit about what Vanessa mentioned, that that uh, <laughs> sort of the, the brand identity that you've built? Um, 
I, you can't see me, but I'm blushing immensely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess it, it, I think it really just stems from us as individuals. I can't take all the credit. Like this, this brand is equally Vanessa and I, um, and if I were to kind of like peg it on something, I would say it, it all stems from our name. So Amsam, um, comes from the phrase Amsam, which in Vietnamese kind of roughly translates to like rowdy, kind of noisy, but in a negative way. So it actually used to be a term that our parents would chastise us with. Like, you know, Vanessa and I'd be in the back of the car, just like rattling around, screeching and singing. And they would turn around and be like, oh my gosh, stop it. Like, don't be so umsum. And we kind of, I really love this idea of reclaiming that word and kind of owning the noise and the ferocity behind it. And I, I and I wanted to bring that same energy just like to our brand because I think it's like a big piece of who we are, like proud and loud Asian flavors. And so, yeah, like it just became really easy to pull that thread through where you can see it, um, you know, on our site and on our social, the, the topics um, and, you know, the, the issues that we choose to speak about as a brand. Like we really try not to shy away um, from things that might be perceived as like hot button or potentially controversial. But, you know, I think it was our way of kind of, you know, for so long, Asian Americans, one, have been seen as like this monolithic identity, which like lol. Um, and, and two, also been kind of washed with this, you know, quiet, invisible, kind of submissive model minority thing. Um, and we just so want to like break out against that in every way from like the flavors um, in our products down to, you know, the interaction on our website, all the way through to, you know, what, what, what shows up at your door. And so, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, honestly, such a dream to build a brand like this, because I kind of get to be like my wacky OTT self. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's been so much fun. And it's definitely a complete collaboration across everyone on our team, um, just to show kind of the multitudes that exist um, within Asian Americana. One of the things that that has really struck me about your brand from from launch uh, has been the cohesiveness of the brand identity that it extends to, you know, obviously your website and your packaging, but um, even the the like the little the match the matchbooks that that you made or even what was it uh, your barcode has sort of a squiggly am I remembering this correctly <laughs> yes, your barcode yeah. has sort of a squiggly design um, how did how did you I guess what I'm asking is how did you do that like how did you extend the brand out so completely into all of the ways that that a customer might interact with it I, I mean let me, a little bit of context I think we we often interview people who um, start with a either a bootstrapped approach or start a business out of their home and then sort of build it gradually over time as they as they figure out what they're doing as they learn their customers and and what I found so striking about your brand is that you you hit the ground running with a a ready to go uh, brand and product and and presentation so how did you how did you pull all of those aspects together uh, in such a cohesive way and how did you how did you make sure you were remembering every you know there's so much to juggle how did you do all of that oh my gosh Ethan we, we're, we're barely hanging on um, I, I, <laughs> that's what everybody I, says yeah right like classic if you're building a food business um right so I you know what I'm actually going to attribute this to Vanessa so when we first started on our journey I remember um we, we didn't even know what we were going to be. Like, we didn't even know the starter format was going to be it. But I remember her speaking to me in the East Village um, one afternoon. And I remember her just turning to me and being like, I want to build the brand that, like, this Asian American community deserves. And that, like, that phrase, like, so struck with me. This idea of, like, a, a beautiful, cohesive um 
kind of impactful brand that was centered for this Asian American audience. Like you just, we just haven't seen that yet really. And, and done kind of like thoroughly and kind of cohesively. And I just like that rung so deeply for me. And I think Vanessa brings a level of like intentionality and thoroughness. I mean, she's like an ex consultant, so um, <laughs> this is like in her DNA, um, but she brings a level of like intentionality and, and thoroughness. And she like actually helped me pull all those details that you actually mentioned were her being like, hey, how can we continue to push this? Because this audience has never seen a brand like this before. And we owe it to them to like go 150%. Um, and so, yeah, like that, that is our North Star every day. Um, and, and so I think hopefully, yeah, that kind of comes off and all the small little, little touches um, that hopefully kind of surprise and delight our customers, both Asian and non-Asian alike. But it's, it's really this kind of like core commitment to a community that we believe is underserved and has been kind of ignored by by mainstream brands that you know can afford to be um, so beautiful and, and and so robust. Vanessa, do you want to do you want to <laughs> defend yourself, or are you are you comfortable with that characterization? That, um, you know, I I think she's largely characterized me well. Pretty much nobody knows me better than Kim. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say that I, I really agree with that. I think there's so much inspiration that can come from being wildly focused because mm. then you get to just completely immerse yourself in a world that you create. You're like, okay, this is the world that I'm building for this audience. And like, let me, and luckily we happen to be of that audience, but then we just got to kind of fully just dive into that like what what how could we bring this to life like in what ways could um we kind of um bring this experience kind of bring this delight in this experience um to the next level and and in what ways would this resonate with them and how can we speak to um aspects of their identity of their culture their experiences um in subtle ways like these nods and these winks like you said ethan um yeah and, and and us being really focused and having that clear audience and that clear north star um in mind i think it allowed for us to unlock kind of like the next level of of creativity um and and just inspiration what were what were some of the the key takeaways from that research process that you mentioned earlier watching people cook, uh, those focus groups that you mentioned, how did, how did your idea from its original conception change over the course of that process? Well, I think, you know, it was through that process that we, we got really close to this Asian American audience to, um, as far as like, you know, not just like, okay, this is what we think they like, or this is as our lived experiences as Asian Americans ourselves, what we think we like, but actually we spoke to so many folks of different backgrounds. And I feel like in that process, we got really clear of like, wow, like there are so many Asian Americans like us that are first and second gen across this country that grew up on Asian flavors, love these flavors, but are having a really hard time recreating them at home. Um, and that really like um, became clear to us during that process. And I think having those conversations allowed us to double down on that. Um, I think before that, um, you know, we, we, we had these hypotheses, but it was through those like many conversations that were like, oh, wow, like they're the most underserved audience when it comes to this category. Um, so from my perspective, I think it was really getting close to that audience and um, or even closer than we already are um, and really um, cementing our commitment there. 
I'd also just kind of add on to that really quickly. So I, I think definitely um, through that process, we learned about kind of the, I guess I'd say like functional um, challenges that folks were having. But I think we also learned from having these conversations that for a lot of these first and second gen folks, food is so much more than functional. It's oftentimes our first stop into re-engaging with our identities. You know, for folks like Vanessa and I, you know, maybe we've moved away from home, you know, maybe we don't speak the language as much, you know, maybe there's a bit of like a cultural barrier between us and our parents or our grandparents. But when we kind of want to step back, you know, into our Vietnamese identity, like a bowl of bun bao is like the first thing, right? And so that was really interesting and and for us really powerful, this link between you know, something that serves your body, you know, and like keeps you running and is fuel, but also to something larger, um, you know, like your cultural identity. And so that was like a really cool thing to kind of see and, and um, yeah, get a feel for. But also, I mean, a, a, a huge responsibility to take on for yourselves, you know, present, <laughs> presenting a single product where uh, ostensibly every family or every cook has their own recipe for a, a sauce or a style of, of making a particular dish. So how did you, how did you um, account for or, or acknowledge that diversity within each of the dishes that you wound up launching your starters for? Yeah, that is a great question, Ethan. And thank you so much for asking that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's totally, I, I think there's probably a much larger academic paper that could be written around um, how for a lot of kind of BIPOC cuisines, there's this idea of like tokenization of like this dish or this product or, you know, this chef must represent all of, you know, a country or a cuisine. Um, and so we're, you know, as Asian Americans ourselves, that was something we were hyper, hyper aware of. And so from the start, we were like, okay, how can we kind of do this the right way? And when, and when we say the right way, we're not purporting it to be quote unquote authentic. Um, that's not our goal. Our goal is to build something with cultural integrity. And what we what we mean by that is having someone of that background involved in the process every step of the way. Because, you know, Vanessa and I are Vietnamese Americans, but we can't be telling people how to eat Thai food or Filipino food. Um, and even with Vietnamese food, like our, you know, mom's uh, recipe might not be everyone's mom's recipe. So we just decided to really like, okay, how can we do this well, and so for us, that was partnering with these kind of iconic chefs or or what we call t- tastemakers. Um, they are all kind of BIPOC folks um, of these backgrounds who spent, you know, a lot of time um, and years of their life kind of cutting their teeth in these cuisines, um, opening incredible restaurants, writing cookbooks. Um, they're folks that you know I we really ad- re- admire and respect. Um, for really kind of pushing the frontier of what it means to eat modern Filipino, modern Thai, modern Vietnamese food. And so, yeah, that was like built into the business day one. We're like, okay, cool. Like we're not going to purport to represent entire countries and cuisines. What we can do though is partner with and continue to um, amplify incredible folks already doing incredible work. And so, yeah, we we're so lucky. We work with the coolest chefs in the world. Um, I just remember, you know, it was like one afternoon in the East Village. We were hanging out uh, in Jeepney, um, which is Nicole Ponseca's restaurant. And I just remember being like, oh, my God, this is like my job. <laughs> like, I get to hang out here and, and kick it and, and eat pork seasick all day. And that's my job. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. I'm joined this week by Vanessa and Kim Pham, sisters and co-founders of Omsom. Um, I, I wanted to, to uh, touch on something that you mentioned earlier and the, um, the sort of methodology that you applied in the launch of the company. Um, we, we talked to a lot of founders who have sort of a, a vision and are, are going to work towards it regardless of the feedback that they get in, in many cases, right? They, they feel strongly that there's a, a market for a certain product where you sort of had that, but you also did this very extensive uh, process of, of research. Um, was there, was there a, an aspect of your backgrounds or your careers that, that prepared you to approach it in that way? Or how did you, how did you learn how to do that process? Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I definitely think that was informed by probably what we've done in the past. Like personally, for me, uh, my background um, is in management consulting. So I worked at Bain for a couple of years where I advised like Fortune 500 CPGs on their retail strategy and their growth strategy. Um, and so part of that research or part of that work was research, consumer research. Um, and that definitely kind of fed into our approach. But I think even stepping back from, I guess, like the tactical skills of like, okay, we, we spoke to X number of people on the phone or we designed a survey. Um, I think it was just this overall kind of idea that when it comes to our company, we wanted, we wanted to bring like heart and um, creativity and artistry, but we also wanted to make sure that what we were building would really meaningfully fit into people's lives and be a solution that they could come back to, um, you know, week after week. Um, and so we felt that the best way to do that is to kind of take an approach where it was like, okay, what's like, what's a problem and, and how can we solve that problem? And what's like a really important problem for folks? Um, and like, how can we make something that doesn't, that doesn't exist that more closely actually integrates into people's routines and lives. Um, and so that's, that was like the kind of guiding, um, principle to to the approach that we took with all that that research that we did up front. Um, we really just wanted to get a clear view on that. And I think along the way, we got tons of inspiration for things that were less, you know, cut and dry and much more creative. We had all these amazing conversations that shaped um, our views um, and our, um, I guess, our whole approach beyond just like kind of strict product and um, and product market fit. So yeah, we I definitely say we took like a really blended approach, but ultimately it just came down to talking to folks. And even today, I think mm-hmm. our whole, when we talk about cultural integrity, I think a lot of that is process. Um, 
it, it is like partially like outcome as in what is our product taste like at the end of the day, but a lot of what makes cultural integrity is doing your research, getting the right people involved, compensating the right people. And so I think our upfront research fed into that, our tastemakers feed into that, and then also our consumer testing of our products before we launch them um, with people of that background too. So we have like kind of um, test groups that we work with are just like people um, of that background in that community that um, we kind of have test our product before we bring it to market and take all the feedback we can get. Like that's part of the process too. So I think, yeah, just getting in front of folks, staying close to our community is like kind of a big part of what has allowed us to, to make some of the decisions that we have and hopefully they were the right ones. <laughs> TBD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and you also, uh, you also went through the fundraising process pre-launch, which is, which is a notoriously difficult thing to do. Uh, what what was that like for you? Yeah, so it's not it's not super easy fundraising for a, a CPG food CPG business um, for sure. Like I wouldn't wouldn't say that was like a fun thing to do. <laughs> um, but you know, I think we we kind of went after it, and we I think our our approach was really trying to get people that deeply understood what we're doing, um, which inevitably led to us having conversations with a ton of the wrong people for a while. <laughs> so people who did not get it and they were like, they were, uh, for the first month was like, wait, so you're not building software. And then the second month was like, wait, you're, you're building product. That's cool, but it's perishable. Like that, there were phases of just talking to the wrong people. Um, and so that, that was definitely tough and, and being, um, for many reasons, it was hard. We're first time founders, we're women of color. We're raising, yeah, we're raising, we were raising for a food business. Um, I think there was a lot of aspects that made it difficult, but ultimately we found the right people that deeply understood what we're trying to do. And I think that if there's anything that you can do right for yourself during the fundraising process is actually, I think it is being unapologetic about what you're trying to do um, and not trying to necessarily kind of please the person you speak to or adapt your message for your audience. But I think in the long run, it really does serve you to stay true to your North star in those conversations. Um, because the worst part is bringing on people who, who don't have the right expectations. Uh, how did how did you find those investors and and how did you I mean presumably you're going through the this the the testing process with uh, people from the various communities connected to the dishes that you're the starters that you're making um, I assume those conversations were different the feedback you were getting from those two groups were different so how did you yeah how did you find the balance or how did you parse what one group was saying? Uh, in comparison to what the other group was saying? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. They, you know, I, so like, I, I would say that we, we have always been very clear about our commitment being to our audience in, in terms of like how we build the company and the products that we make. Um, and I, we've always angled that, you know, to investors as like, well, that's how you get a, a great business, right? You get people, um, a community that like loves you and feel seen by you and is committed to you, um, as a brand is deeply loyal to you. And so I think whenever there was anything conflicting, we'd be like, Hey, like, we're going to listen to the consumers, like the people that are actually going to make this business. Um, 
like we don't say this to investors, but there's a lot of money in the world as far as like, you know, getting investment. Like it's not easy, but there there's a lot of investors. And so, um, but like your community, like those people are the ones that you exist for. Um, and I, so I think it's just really being clear on that. Um, and I found that when you show that conviction, investors, in, in my experience, have really respected it. Um, so yeah, it's not always easy though. It's definitely like, I'm saying this from having had to work through that, like having had to work through imposter syndrome and self-doubt um, and, and, and my own wavering at times. But um, yeah, but I found in the end that that's, that's the best way. And I hope that like, yeah, I hope that that um, is something that like I can kind of, we can continue to do as founders is, is kind of advocate for that and um, stay true to our commitments. Uh, what were uh, maybe just a, a couple of quick examples, if you don't mind, what were some of the uh, really, maybe really positive conversations you had with investors and and some of the really challenging ones? What And I, I ask this in the uh, sort of in, in there, there are a lot of people who uh, might want to go through a similar process to the one that you've gone through. And are there a piece of advice or takeaways that, that you learned throughout this process that might, that other people might uh, benefit from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. So let's see some examples. So positive ones, like, I, I mean, every conversation can go a million different ways, but there's kind of like two broad types. So like, one is like, I get it. Like, I totally get it. So like, right out of the gate, you're like, hey, like, this is like, this is the this is the opportunity. This is the community that's underserved. Like, you know, look at Asian American culture and cuisine, look at this renaissance of Asian culture. And they're just like, yes, I love Asian food. Like, I I totally see this, like, crazy rich Asians and parasite is selling out theaters. Like, th like there's people that just get it. And then that's the best kind of conversation where you don't need to like fight for the way you see the world and the way you see the future. Um, also great conversation is, somebody not quite understanding it, but throughout the conversation, learning it with you and being like, huh, I didn't realize that, but you're right. Like there is this like amazing opportunity. Wow. The ethnic aisle should really not exist. Uh, you know, things like that where they, they didn't quite think of it before, but they are learning on the spot with you and they're so open to it and they're light, their eyes are lighting up because you're helping them see this whole, um, kind of, um, opportunity, this whole amazing, um, I guess like space for a brand like ours to really flourish and thrive um, and meet a real need. Um, those are two great types of conversations and, and we've been lucky enough to have a good number of those. Um, but I would say there's also been a handful of really, really, not even a handful, tons of really hard <laughs> ones. Um, and oh, I could go on for days, but they're like, these conversations here are things that you might hear during conversations like that, at least for us, it's like, oh, like Asian American audience, that's kind of niche though. Or, uh, or and we're like, uh, uh, 22 million Asian Americans in the U.S. fastest growing population, fastest growing buying power, and they're like, eh, sounds small. Um, <laughs> um, or there's folks that have been like, you know what? Well, if Asian people like it, there's no way that white people will like it. Like they're just those are different audiences. They don't like the same things. Like, um, you know, palettes are just completely different, and so you can't capture both. We've heard we heard a lot of that. Um, we heard we heard some things that were just like, oh, like you're not keto. Like, why aren't you keto? Or you know what I mean? Like, just like a lot of the trends that are um, in the food uh, food industry that are let's like let's call a spade a spade, like very much for white audiences. Um, those trends, like if we weren't trying to address one of them, we were kind of like 
seen as not a real opportunity. So yeah, lots of difficult conversations, super discouraging ones, um, all mixed in there. So, I mean, it's like, it's just like, no, and I think it's the same thing that we apply to our kind of whole approach when it comes to marketing, I think should be applied to investors as well, which is be super clear and focused on who your audience is. Like that applies for investors too. Um, and don't, you shouldn't listen to every investor. Like certain investors just aren't it for you. They aren't in your quote unquote audience and you should not take their advice. So um, yeah, those are some of the interesting conversations that we had along the way. And Kim, you had, you had worked uh, in, in other startups or at least in sort of the startup and, and fundraising world before starting Omsum. How, how has this process been different or what have you, what have you learned uh, I guess, what did you bring into this that you already knew? And then what have you learned doing it? Yeah. So in, in my past life, um, I've long worked in startups since I was actually 16. And so I think every step of my career has felt like I've been trying to get here. Um, and so, yeah, working in startups and then actually working in venture capital, I was just like, okay, cool. How can I de-risk kind of like my own entrepreneurial journey? But obviously nothing can prepare you for being a founder. Like I was like, oh, cool. I've been working for founders. I've been working alongside founders. I've invested in founders. I've helped founders. Cool. I must know what it is. Uh, I didn't. Um, <laughs> and so all of this has just been like a really crazy uh, learning experience, very steep learning curve. Um, but yeah, I guess like my my past was actually more so on the tech side. And so I think I brought some of that, you know, somewhat cringy, you know, like move fast, break things energy at first. Um, and then I think, you know, we just realized, oh, like with food and with physical product and with supply chain, like that's just not the case. And so I kind of had to recalibrate a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's been such a, it's like everything and nothing that I expected at the same time. Um, I'm very thankful for my previous experience in startups and in VC. Like I think it helped you know, Vanessa and I with, you know, some of the terminology or some of the nuance with the fundraising process or kind of just knowing like, you know, best practice, but you really don't know it truly until you start it. And if I could have done things differently, I might've like started a company earlier instead of trying to do all these things in some ways, like prepare myself. Like, I don't think, and Ethan, you probably know this as well. Like nothing can prepare you for doing something like this. Yeah. Seriously. You're just going to get your ass kicked regardless. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You might as well. Yeah. Um, I want to, the, the, before we switch to the rapid fire uh, segment, I, I just want to talk briefly about um, your uh, co-founder roles and responsibilities, both a little bit of the dynamics of working with a sibling, but also how the two of you uh, share and divide responsibilities and how you made those decisions. Yeah, so it actually was pretty, pretty easy for us because we're exact <laughs> opposites. Um, I'm not sure if you picked up on this, Ethan, in our previous meetings and conversation, conversations, but um, yeah, Kim and I are just very, very different people. So um, I am kind of the more um, data-driven, strategic, analytical, structured thinker, um, and Kim is this kind of more creative um creative person that goes with her gut <laughs> and her, her intuition is very community focused. And so we just we come at things from completely different angles. Like, honestly, you could task me with trying to imagine how Kim might see things. And I probably would like, even knowing her this well, like she just, she's so, she just sees the world so differently. And so it's really awesome working with her 
and at times also challenging because we're so different. But I think for the most part, we get to better ideas and outcomes and, and um, solutions to problems together. And we really challenge each other. So um, at OMSOM, I do, um, we split things right brain, left brain. I do all things um, supply chain, logistics, operations, like finance, strategy, fundraising. Um, and Kim? Yeah, and I do everything kind of on the creative marketing, brand, content, community, um, kind of all the all the ways in which we kind of show up in the world. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very challenging. Anyone in any sort of co-founder relationship knows this, but I think in particular, you know, there's this added layer for us, which is that we're sisters, which is great because I think at the heart of it means like immense trust, immense love, but also means that, you know, it's, you know, we, we do kind of lapse into you know, like petty sibling mode, you know, like we're quite close in age as well. Um, and so, you know, growing up, there was often competition or, you know, comparison. And so sometimes like, you know, in our, in times of conflict, we can kind of default to some of that. But overall, I literally, I can't imagine building this business with anyone else. I feel like I've waited my whole life for Vanessa to want to start a business with me. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's literally like a dream come true, like a childhood dream come true. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Um, any any piece of advice for somebody who's uh, either entering into a co-founder relationship uh, or looking for a co-founder to start a company with? Ooh. Um, get a coach. Get a personal <laughs> life coach like ASAP. Um, yeah, I, that, I feel like both Vanessa and I have seen therapists and coaches um, kind of throughout our journey, and it's just been hugely, hugely helpful and transformational, like, yeah, so definitely recommend that. <laughs> yes. Um, I would say like get get really comfortable being vulnerable with that person. I think in being a founder, half of the conflict that you'll have with your co-founder or even more boils down to feeling afraid. Like feeling scared that you're gonna fuck up or like that. Um sorry, I don't know if I want to swear. Um <laughs> or that you're gonna you're gonna let that person down, right? Like that is like when we, if we're ever like not seeing eye to eye, like it comes down to that most of the time. Um, and so, or like we, yeah, we, we, that one of us is just scared and like we, we need to figure that out and we need to kind of confront that before we can see clearly. So yeah, I think, I think it's just being vulnerable and open and, and trying to put your ego aside at times and, and just work together to move past that um, instinct to, to feel afraid. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's it's so hard, right? It's um, so hard, and and especially, I mean, uh, I I talk about my relationship with Ori, my co-founder, mm -hmm. as as uh, you know, often sort of a we we're not siblings, but we've been friends for a dozen years, and and there are some similar dynamics, but um, but the conflict that we often enter into is is uh, is often where the best ideas come come out of, or or mm -hmm. where we you know, when we butt heads and then dig into why we're disagreeing or why we have different perspectives on a certain topic, uh, we almost always come out with a third approach that's better and incorporates aspects of both of the two things that we both sort of came into the conversation with. So being able to to be vulnerable in that way, to let your guard down, to um, to just sort of be honest, I completely agree with you. Um, let's do some fun rapid fire questions. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Uh, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Oh, pea cucumber. Yeah. All right, Kim, you want to go first, and then Vanessa, what? Uh, why? Why cucumbers and why pea shoots? 
Okay, cucumber, because I have occasionally tough skin that you got to work through, but then once you're inside, it's like a mushy disaster. In a I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that is so you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, I chose pea shoots because I think they're, like, wildly underrated. They're, like, the best mm. vegetable on this earth. Not that they I'm are. underrated. I don't really know. I guess I just I, I identify like with that. Too. I don't know. <laughs> I just identify with that. I don't know. I just feel like people, like, just – they are sleeping on pea shoots. And mm. and you can always pair with garlic. And I know you love garlic. So. Oh, I do. Yeah, I put garlic on everything. And they yeah. they work in so many different applications. Stir fry or garnish or salad. Yes. or There's so many ways to use them. Yes, yes. I'm versatile. versatile. <laughs> um, how about, what's the, the one kitchen tool you can't live without? Cooking chopsticks. Uh, cast iron. Nice. All right. Uh, tell me about cooking chopsticks. Um, I just feel like I, I grew up with seeing my mom using them for everything from like scrambling eggs to like frying chicken wings. And so they're like the most versatile tool in my eyes. <laughs> Are they different from eating chopsticks or is it just, yeah, they're a little bit longer and thicker, um, and bigger. They're like a little, I don't even know. Yeah. They're almost kind of like the length of tongs, like small tongs in some ways. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. And Vanessa, how about cast iron? Um, I am, I love everything that's been browned. I'm a big fan of the Meyer reaction. And I, I just think I like, I try to brown everything like out of things that aren't <laughs> supposed to be browned. I'm like, that should better be crispy. Um, and I think the cast iron really helps me achieve that. So yeah, I'm queen of cast iron. She loves um, a good crunch. I love it. Uh, what did you eat, uh, for breakfast or for lunch growing up as kids? Oh my gosh. I literally posted this on Twitter the other day. Um, Plain jasmine rice with pork floss. Mm. My jam. Mm, love me some pork floss. Um, it was it was literally always leftovers. Our <laughs> parents were like wildly absent at times. Like they they <laughs> they just they were like literally starting in first grade. They were like, yeah, you're gonna wake yourself up and like bring walk yourself to the bus stop and like do your thing. And so I always I was like, yeah, always having leftover. But my mom had amazing leftovers. They would be like bitter melon soup, uh, winter melon soup. Oh my God. Oh, I had leftover winter melon soup all the time growing up. Um, and that's like, to me, that dish is like home. That sounds great. Uh, what are <laughs> some of the most, um, unexpected ways that your customers have used your starters? Ooh, someone made, um, the lob starter into a soup, which mm. was really interesting. Um, somebody made ravioli, which oh my I, god, yes! <laughs> I haven't tried it, so I can't, I can't say yay or nay. But I definitely appreciate the creativity there, like an oh. Italian style ravioli, like a tomato sauce. I don't, I don't think they had tomato sauce on it. But no, there was like was... cheese and like marinated meat. I think yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. it was interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> um. And where can our listeners uh, find you, find your products, purchase your products? Um, yeah, what's the best way for them to, to get involved? We are at omsom.com, spelled probably like it sounds, O-M-S-O-M. We are at omsom on Instagram, um, and we are omsom on Twitter. But yeah, you can, you can, Vanessa and I are kicking around the internet we're super open as individuals, so if anyone ever like wants to ask us any questions or anything, you can just hit us up on IG. Yeah, and and I highly recommend uh, your mailing your uh, mailing list. Your emails are great. Lots oh, of good links and commentary, and I've been really enjoying them. <laughs> awesome. um, 
As always, you can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You can find Valerie on Instagram at Foodie in New York. Um, thanks to Jess Cringich, our awesome sound engineer. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. And most of all, Kim and Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having oh, yeah. us. This was so lovely. Thanks, See you all Ethan. next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.